Peter Williams from One O'Clock on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Well, we'll stop the music for a while here on this Monday afternoon and introduce to you once again a man who's become very well known around the country in recent months because of his Stop Co-Governance Tour. Julian Batchelor joins us here on RCR. Julian, thanks for being with us. Are you still on tour? If you are, whereabouts are you at the moment? Yep. Hi, Pete. Yeah, no, I'm on tour. I'm in a bunker uh, in New Plymouth, um, and uh, we're just about to move off to Wakatani to do the to do another another um, event there. So um, yeah, last night we had a six thousand people reached with an, a, a live feed of a seminar that we had to do in the city uh, because um, the local iwi had um, so pounced on the locations that we had booked and there were death threats and there were threats of burning down houses, targeting people who came out and, and said they supported me. One of the local council members was targeted because he said, I believe in free speech and Julian should be allowed to speak. And so he was targeted. And really it was like moving into a, a war zone. When I got, got into the city, I had to hide my car in a barn uh, of a farmer just on the outskirts of the city, then be transferred into another car, a nondescript car, and then taken to somebody's home. And uh, really, this was like a, a military exercise just to have a speech about co-governance. And the interesting thing is that I'm the only guy in the country who's actually calling the country to go back to the treaty in Māori, Titiriti, and the original meaning of that treaty. So... When you see all these people who are outside our meetings, sometimes 150 of them, they've got honour the treaty, they have no idea, obviously, what I'm talking about inside the meeting, and they are the renter mob. They are the people who are completely ignorant about what I'm doing, but they're just wanting to shut down free speech. That's what it's about. Yeah, they're well- shutting down... Anyway, go on. Yeah, I was going to say, we'll come back to the various versions of the treaty that uh, appear to be at the heart of what you're talking about and appear to be at the heart of so many of the protests. But just tell me about the places that you had booked. Where did you want to have public meetings? And who closed them down once you'd made the booking for the venue? Well... You mean New Plymouth, or was yeah, it? Yeah. Just, you talk about everywhere. Well, in New Plymouth in particular, because you said you had to uh, revert to an online presentation last night, and you couldn't actually hold a public meeting anywhere in New Plymouth. No, that's a, that's that's how it was. That's a fact. Yep. So we were booked in to go to the um, to go to the race course um, in New Plymouth, and very late in the piece uh, that was cancelled. And we have somebody that's on the committee on the race course committee, who's sort of one of us, but people don't know that. And uh, she told us that um, uh, Iwi had um, hammered the owners or the managers of the race course and said that they'll pull all this various sponsorship around the city um, and uh, they will do damage to the race course if this meeting goes ahead. And so, um, yeah, that's that's what's operating. This is tribal rule. And then I went into... 
the local people on the ground here working with me, and there's a massive group of people who are interested in coming to hear about co-governance, and they can't now because they've been shut out, except that they could go onto the online one. But anyway, we had to try and find other buildings, and absolutely everybody in this city is terrified of having me come to their building because the threats are that you get bullied, threatened, have your building damaged, burned down, and then they target the owners of the meetings by um, trying to affect their businesses negatively. And, you know, um, and so they're weaponizing all of this to stop me and to stop free speech. Um, so I went into hotels yesterday morning. I thought, you know what, I, the, we're supposed to have this meeting at 3 o'clock yesterday, Sunday. So I went into town in the mornings and thought, I'll just go and find a conference room in a, in a hotel. Let's just go and do that. So I went around various hotels and found a great room and was talking to the person at the door, sorry, at the reception desk, and uh, was all ready to do the booking. And then suddenly a Maori lady appeared right beside me with a moku on her chin. And she said she came within a foot of my face and said, Kia Julian. And um, she um, then went on to tell me that she wanted to meet with me. And uh, they wanted to just sort of negotiate, they said, with me. And I said, look, I won't negotiate with So, So what hotel who- was this at, Julian? This was the uh, just one moment. I'll get the bit of paper. So, um, so, so, so this at- this woman who came to the the discussion you were having with the receptionist did she work at the hotel? No, no, no. Apparently, I was told that now that, that hotel, that particular hotel, I'm just moving to try and find the bit of paper that I had in my hand in my pocket that had the details of the hotel on it because I had it. In my pocket just a few minutes ago, and I don't know where it is, but it's a downtown New Plymouth hotel, and apparently it's owned by Iwi now. And so um, they they own the hotel, and she wanted to come and say she wants to negotiate with me, whatever that means. Oh, here it is. I've got it right in my hand now. Um, it is the Plymouth International Hotel. Right, I think I know and that place. That's the five or six story place uh, down at the end of the main street, isn't it? Before you go down the slope and head north. Uh, that's it. But but they <clears throat> they decided they didn't want you. So, Julian, there there's obviously issues around the country for better for worse. Uh, people don't want to associate with you. Have you thought, therefore, of changing your approach instead of being so dogmatic about? the way you conduct the meetings, have you thought of having other people in the meeting who can be part of the presentation? And I'm suggesting maybe you get some some um, Maori who would be sympathetic to your worldview, who can be speakers as well as you. In other words, have, uh, have more voices making presentations, particularly Maori voices at your meetings, uh, which might make these occasions more acceptable to those protesting? Have you thought about changing your approach? Well, of course. Um, we have Māori who are following us on this tour in a, in a positive sense, who are supportive, um, but they, they don't want to poke their head above the parapet because in Māori culture, according to tikanga, they get bullied and they will be attacked like I'm attacked. And so there is a... There is sort of a groupthink 
that if you come outside the group and you stand up against the group, then you're going to get bullied and you're going to get intimidated by other Māori, and they don't want to do that. And so we have a, a real issue with trying to... I have many, many Māori following me and supporting this whole cause, but they will not go public because of their fear of their own people attacking them. I mean... I had a, my, that's just how it is, Peter. It's just the way it is in New Zealand right now. So I've got people who are very happy to tell me privately, Māori. Um, we've had Māori in every single meeting we've done, everywhere. And one Māori lady got up at the back at our Ashburton meeting. Her video is on our website of what she said. But she said, I, she's about 70 years old. She had a, a carved walking stick, and she said, I came in here. She was the last speaker of the night in our Q&A time. She said, I, ha I, I, am, um, I came in here to stir up a lot of trouble. But she said, I listened to everything Julian said, and I have to say that I agree with everything he said. And she was a Māori lady? She, said, well, she was a Māori lady. She's on the front of our website. So if you, if you just go on to stopcogovernance.kiwi, and then just scroll down a bit, there's the RCR um, interview that I did with Paul Brennan, then we scroll down a bit more, you'll see her. It just says the Murray lady at the Ashburton meeting, and she's she's there. And she says, you know, we Murray have to face some things, she says, and then she says, we're all one people in this country, at which point everybody in the audience clapped, and then she just walked out. Have you? But I know how yeah, it works. Have you tried to garner support from... Uh, Winston Peters and some of his cohort, in particular Casey Costello and Hobson's Pledge, because they're saying essentially the same sorts of things as you. But uh, how can I put this, Julian, uh, respectfully? They're saying it in a slightly more diplomatic way than you are, and therefore they don't get the pushback and the anger that you seem to get. So have you thought about uh, coordinating with well, Winston Peters and Casey Costello, Shane Jones, just three names that... Uh, uh, of, of high-profile people who are sympathetic to the way you're thinking. Well, they're not running. They're not running uh, public meetings on the Treaty of Waitangi, which is the thing that really attracts all the, the activists. Um, and you know what? I think there's a. I, I, I consider myself to be working alongside Casey Costello and and uh, Winston Peters because I know, and also um, Hobson's Pledge. Um, and I know that they are, we're on the same song sheet, particularly the Centre for Political Research, that's Muriel Newman and Frank Newman. So we're all singing the same thing, but I am actually going right into the lion's den to confront this and to bring it to the public. Uh, and uh, I'm, as far as I know, I'm really the only one who's talking about the treaty and what's gone on with the treaty and how it's been twisted and contorted over 40 years. Um, and that is what is attracting the attention. And you can't kind of get around that because you have to talk about it. And if you talk about it, you've got to talk about the twisting and the fraud and the corruption that's involved in that. And so that's what's attracting the attention. So I'm different from them in that respect um, from all those other great organisations, and I think they're wonderful. Um, and, of course, you know, Casey Costello is a Maori, Winston Peters is a Maori, Shane Jones is a Maori, so they get away with it because they are Maori. And I'm, they can't stick the racist label on those guys, those people. 
Precisely, and, that, and that's why I, that's why I'm suggesting to you that if you were holding meetings where you had Maori speakers, then maybe you wouldn't get the pushback that you, you've had. You won't get the cancellations, the the venues being shut down. But are you saying that you cannot yeah, get Maori to speak at your meetings? Is that what it's come to? That's what it's come to. Because the Maori that I have, you see, there's a difference between the ordinary Maori on the street, right, for example, or the average Joe Blow Maori. Um, and Winston Peters and Casey Costello, because those guys, I, I think, I think the activists would be afraid to have a go at Winston Peters and Casey Costello and, and Shane Jones because they're, they're, you know, they're ex-MPs or they're prospective MPs or they're people with a very, very high profile and they're Maori, and so um, they don't have a go at them, but they'll have a go at me because I'm white. But then you've got the problem of getting some Maori into my shows, like I've just said, who won't do that, they've been invited, but they won't do that because they are going to get bullied and intimidated because they're not big shots like Winston Peters and Casey Costello and Shane Jones. They're just ordinary and they're easy targets, you see, for for um, for people to bully them. Yes, I can understand that. What about then this guy, Chris McCabe? Now, you've probably seen the piece in the New Zealand Herald this morning which yep. Yep. Uh, is written by, amongst others, David Fisher, who would be very un- unsympathetic to the cause that you're espousing. Uh, he suggests this man, Chris McCabe, is a National Front organiser and he's been supporting you and vetting people, particularly at a meeting in Hawke's Bay last week, uh, stopping or being a sentry on guard at the bottom of a driveway at a meeting you had at a private yep. house. Now, Chris McCabe yep. has said some pretty distasteful things over the years, uh, Julian. So why are you being associated with him or why are you associating yourself with him? Well, you know what? When we when we go into an area, all sorts of people put up their hands to help and I don't um, vet them like um, a job in the security service. I don't uh, go over ask everybody for their, um, you know, a full rundown of their past, like the security service would run, would would want, or you know, a high level diplomatic government position would want, where they absolutely troll through every aspect of your part of your past to see that you're clean and safe. I'm not like that. We are very grateful for anybody who puts their hand up to say they want to help. And Chris McCabe actually is a hell of a nice guy. He's really capable. He's a really nice fellow. And I only found out about his association with this, whatever it's called now, something front. Yeah, the National Front. Um, The National Front, after the meetings had finished. And um, he said, oh, they're starting to talk about my past and the National Front. And I said, what's that? And he said, it's this, this, and this. And um, I actually rang him this morning and said, oh, you've made the papers uh, this morning with your National Front stuff. And he said, well, um, there's nothing in there that, um, you know, they've twisted some things, uh, as you'd expect from David Fisher, because that's what he specialises in. Um, And to try and paint me as a white supremacist, that's Julian Batchelor, as a white supremacist, because I'm associated with Chris McCabe. But as far as I know, Chris was just... He's not a racist. He's not a white supremacist. And um, he was saying some things about, he never said them to me. I didn't even know. Um, He was just a great organiser and wanted to see my my events 
uh, go well in in uh, Hawke's Bay, and he did a great job. So, yeah, um, I can understand I all that, that Julie, going... but maybe you're just being a touch naive because there's a there's a saying that goes, "Perception is reality," and you have been associated with guy uh, with this guy. Uh, the sad fact is that the New Zealand Herald is still pretty influential. That's just that's another pretty big hammer, uh, you know, smash on the on, on, on the nail as far as Stopco governance is concerned, isn't it? I mean, you, 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 can you understand what I'm trying to say to you? You're not really helping yourself by being associated with people like this guy. Well, the interesting thing is that we don't get any press other than bad press, and you'd expect that because everybody's under the influence of the public interest journalism fund, which you've been on the bad end of too as well. You know, I heard about what happened to you, which was disgraceful. And um, so we found that whenever the press does anything uh, about stop co-governance, anything, in, including this um, thing with David Fisher and uh, Chris McCabe, that the book sales, our book sales go through the roof. People wanting to join in and stop this stuff because they see through it. People are unbelievably sceptical about the, the media now in New Zealand. And they're very savvy. This is my thinking with most New Zealanders now, they're very savvy. They've woken up to the corruption in the media. And so it backfires. And I can tell you there's a very, very clear relationship between um, the, the media giving us coverage, bad press, like this morning in the Herald, and people joining our movement to help. <laughs> yeah. Pretty, 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 yeah. pretty I can, incredible, I, actually. I, I can understand that. So you are leaving New Plymouth after not being able to get a venue there. You are going across mm -hmm. the North Island and you say you're going to Whakatane. You're going right into the heart of the Eastern Bay of Plenty. Now, yep. Julian, this is uh, – you're, you're Gary, there's a volcano a few – miles offshore uh, from Whakatane, uh, you're going into an absolute hotspot yourself because can you really believe that you'll be given any sympathy at all in a place like Whakatane uh, with your, with oh, your totally. message? There's, there's totally, there's lots of people. See, the media, the media portrays this as a, you know, the whole country's against Julian Bachelor. No, that's not true. What we're finding is there's a massive number of people in every city who actually want to attend these meetings and hear what I have to say. They're not, they're not all white people. There's all sorts of nationalities come along to our meetings and they're, in, they're genuinely interested in what my message is and what the message of stop co-governance is and they want to talk about that issue. And so you can go right into the most Maori area or stronghold, if you like, and you'll find there's lots of Europeans in there and some Maori who actually want to come along and listen. And they're not, they're not aggro. They're not violent. And so they want to genuinely know what are you saying because we want to come and, and listen and ask questions, and uh, that's what happens. So the media, you'll notice, never, ever, in all the time I've been doing this, which is five months, they never, ever give a balanced report. You never hear the, the comments of people who've actually been to the seminar and you know, interview them coming out of the seminar and say, what did you think? It's always the people who are negative. Oh, absolutely, they... absolutely. And I, I, I'm frustrated no, as no heck because, uh, you know, I would like to have gone to uh, your meeting when you were 
in my neighbourhood recently in Wanaka, which I understand was a very successful meeting, and I had some correspondence with the man who owned that venue, uh, David Reed, and the pressure he was put under by the local council to try and shut you down before the meeting even, even happened. But what frustrates me the most, Julian, is that not once have I heard any specific claims or details that you've outlined in your meetings being reported. Uh, and it's all just a general, he's wrong, they're racist tropes, etc., etc. but he doesn't uh, actually, you're never actually quoted as, as to what you say. So, <laughs> so, so, so that's the frustrating oh. thing as far as I'm concerned. And I also heard that the, the mayor of central Otago, uh, Tim Cadigan, went to your meeting at Lowburn just out of Cromwell and said he left after 20 minutes because he, was, he felt ill because of the racist poison that you were espousing there, that's although it. we never actually that's heard it. what it was. Uh, so I'd just like to discuss with you, if I can, by the way, whereabouts are you having the meeting in Whakatane? Are you at liberty to say whereabouts your meeting is? Or, or well, not? they've just they've just been cancelled, so I've got guys <laughs> on the ground now looking. Funny that, yeah. Well, this is standard. Yeah, Funny yeah, that. yeah so, of course, yeah. So, but, but can we talk about the the stuff that is, uh, as, as Tim Cadigan, the mayor of Central Otago, said is, uh, is racist poison, which made him ill? Uh, I've got your book, Julian. I haven't been to one of your meetings, but I've got your book, Stop Co-Governance, What It Is, Why It's Wrong and Why It Must Be Stopped. There's a pretty extraordinary claim in there. You say by 1865, Māori had sold 90% of New Zealand to settlers. The other 10% was land that was of no value to settlers at the time, such as the Southern Alps. Dr John Robinson arguably New Zealand's foremost historian, researcher and author of many widely acclaimed books, reports, while there were extensive confiscations following the mid-19th century wars, much was returned or paid for, and the final area lost to Māori without compensation was around 1.35 million acres, or 2% of New Zealand. Now, Julian, that's a pretty extraordinary claim. Is, is that... Is that factually correct, and, and would that stand up in a court of law, making a claim like that? Well, nobody's challenged it, and I'm getting my I'm getting my. Those are just quotes. Um, I was with Mike Butler, the historian, um, uh, in in uh, Hastings just in the last meetings that we had there a few days ago. He came to two of my meetings, and um, he said, "Yep, the research has been done on all the land sales." Um, and uh, done by Maori and through the Crown, because you know that through Article 2 of the treaty um, that the Crown was going to um, be the ones who were going to buy land from Maori. And so the analysis that's been done extensively by um, Mike Butler and then Muriel Newman shows that 95, 90% of New Zealand was sold by 1865 by Maori. Now, when Sarapa Nata came on the scene, and he was a politician, as you know, in the 1920s and 30s, New Zealand's greatest Maori, uh, got a law degree in two years instead of three and got a Doctor of Literature, he, he was confronted by Maori in the 1920s and 30s who were what I would consider to be going through uh, seller's remorse. Now, you know what that is? That's when people regret that they have sold all their land. And I think that's what Maori was suffering, suffering from in the 1920s and 30s. And so he went round the Marais, and they were also saying to Maori that we wish we'd never signed the treaty, and surely the treaty, you know, we can get this land back that we sold. And he basically said to them, you need to toughen up because Maori chiefs ceded sovereignty 
to the British in February the 6th, 1840. But he, he goes on to quote them and say, to, 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 in his book uh, that he's written, he's a brilliant man, Sir Aparananada said, hey, you know what? You Maori need to bite the bullet and face some things because you sold your land and you did your, your chiefs, your, your ancestors, gave away their rights when they were very powerful, he says. And so he says to them, you need to face some things. That's basically what that Maori lady in the Ashburton conference said. She said, we Maori have got to face some things. Now, she didn't elaborate on that. I didn't know exactly what she meant, but I think Maori actually do have to face some things. And those figures, John Robinson is massively respected for his research and for his um, the work that he does. He used to work for Maori in the middle of government. And, um, yeah, he, he, he's an incredible guy, that man. Mm, so, the, the point, I, I'm, yeah, the I'm, point I'm, is, I'm, Julian, that this may be this may be a claim by John Robinson, a claim by Mike Butler, but wouldn't it be good to have it uh, confirmed in the courts somehow? Because of course, the message that New Zealand in general has been getting since the late nineteen seventies, early eighties, since the uh, Maori Renaissance began is that that claim of uh, land being sold to New Zealand settlers is just wrong. It was confiscated. Therefore, we had the wars of the 1860s. So it was it was not a case of stuff being sold. It was sold under duress, at cheap price, et cetera, et cetera. That's why we have the Waitangi Tribunal claim. So can't you see that the story that you guys are pushing is just not going to get any traction until there's a proper inquiry until there's a really high, perhaps an independent court, to to find out what is true and what is not. Man, I think in New Zealand's current climate, you'd have a lot of trouble finding um, a, an independent court. Listen to what I'm just going to get a quote here of Sir Aparananata, which he says about confiscations of, of land, and this this issue was around in his time. He was often stood in as the deputy prime minister. He was called the father of the house. Anyway, this is a quote from him. I'll just, it's not very long. I'll just read it to you. Quote, this comes from his book, The Treaty of Waitangi, an explanation, pages 15 to 16. He says this, quote, I have said that these confiscations were wrong. So, sorry, some have said, he says, some have said that these confiscations were wrong and that they contravene the articles of the Treaty of Waitangi, full stop. The government placed in the hands of the Queen of England the sovereignty and the authority to make laws. Some sections of the Maori people violated that authority. He's talking about Kingitanga in the 1860s. War arose from this and blood was spilled. The law came into operation and land was taken in payment. It was their own chiefs who ceded that right to the Queen. Then he finishes off with this bombshell. He says the confiscations cannot therefore be objected to in the light of the treaty. Now, that's what, end quote, that's what he was going around the Marae saying in the 1920s and 30s. But um, today, the narrative coming out is that all the land was stolen, all the land was confiscated, and we all need compensation. Um, and, you know, so there's a narrative coming out of government that is contradictory to historical fact. But nobody's questioning it. And the reason they're not questioning it is because of the $55 million public interest journalism fund. You might be able to go to a court and get all this 
verified and have John Robinson come along and have Mike Butler come along and show us all their figures and all their – but who's going to do that? Who's going to risk that? Who's going who, – I mean, what court is going to risk ruling in favour of Sir Aparananada and John Robinson and Mike Butler, you know? Because these guys, these guys, I totally trust their conclusions because particularly John Robinson, he's a guy that's – he's a PhD in statistics and analysis and everything else. He's, he's a guy that you can go, oh, my goodness. And I know him personally. He's a guy of great integrity, great honesty. Nothing in his books has ever been pointed out to be untrue, and he's written about a dozen books on New Zealand history. Mm, that's the that's the other so thing about I, Robinson's credibility is that he he publishes through Tross Publishing, who themselves are a very controversial in some quarters publishing house. Uh, and John McLean, mm. who runs Tross Publishing, has said, "Well, if we've got stuff in our books which is wrong, tell us and we'll fix it." So he's put the that's challenge it. out there. And it's a bit that's like it. the misinformation and disinformation project. Uh, just tell us what the misinformation and the disinformation is, and it can be corrected. Uh, but Tross Publishing has never had anything put to them which um, could be factually incorrect. So, therefore, they continue and they keep on being abused for it. Uh, Julian, can I talk to you, then, talk to you then about the treaty uh, as such that – the problem, and, and I've read a lot in the last few years about this, uh, the problem with the treaty is that there are too many versions of it, both English and, uh, and Maori. Do you agree with that, that therefore there are versions of the treaty signed, there are versions of the treaty that were translated at the time that have been back-translated to English, and there are too many nuances uh, in the various versions, and therefore we don't really know which version of the treaty we should pay attention to. Is that a fair comment? No. That's the government narrative. You got it perfectly what they'd like you to believe. They'd like you to believe all that, to try and muddy the waters, confuse everybody, and everybody just puts it in the too hard basket and says, oh, we can never understand the treaty because which one and so many nuances. Exactly what you said. But the truth of the matter is there's only one treaty, and that's the treaty in Māori, which was signed. It's Titoriti. It's the Māori name for it. It was signed on February the 6th by 45 chiefs at Waitangi. First to sign was Honiheke. And then between February the 6th and September 1840, so that's over a seven-month period, eight other treaties with the Māori wording on them were put on dogskin and taken round the country. And there were 50 signing locations, all coastal. I've got a map of them where they all happened. And when they made the treaty for the signing on the February the 6th, 1840, at Waitangi, Eight other copies were made. They were put on dogskin because dogskin was more durable than paper, and they are absolutely accurate in their in their copying from the February the 6th dogskin to the other eight copies because they had to have more than one copy. Think about it, going around the country. Yep, you had 542. There was no Xerox in you those days, was there? So you couldn't. There's no, there's no, no photocopying. You can't yeah. just, you know, yeah. take, go down to the copy yeah. centre at the warehouse stationery and go and get a few things copied. So they had they copied them absolutely accurately, and they had nine copies of the treaty in Maori, and that is the one that all the chiefs signed except for Waikato Heads, where there was a rogue James Freeman version in English 
that was signed by 39 chiefs at Waikato Heads, and that's the one the Treaty the, the Waitangi Tribunal's got hold of. It's 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 a rogue version, and it, it's not the treaty, but they're using it because it has forests and fisheries in it, whereas the treaty in Maori, the one that was read out to all the chiefs, the, I'm talking about the treaty in Maori, read to all the chiefs before they signed it on February the 17th, the government printer Colenso printed 200 copies of the treaty in Maori um, that were distributed all over the country so that before the actual dogskin signing version came along, Maori had a chance to read the um, treaty from a Colenso copy, copy made in Paihia on the 17th of February, 1840. And uh, then when the dogskin arrived, they were familiar with it. They would have discussed it. They would have talked about it, and they would be ready to sign. And they, whenever the treaty was signed, they read whoever was doing it, whether it was missionaries or officials from Britain, or whoever was sent out to gather chiefs, the, the signatures of chiefs. They always read the Maori version, which is totally, you know, understandable because that's the Maori. And, and this was a, Ma- Ma- and, a, and, a Maori version that was translated by the Williamses, father and son from yep. the draft that is now called the Littlewood Draft. Is that what you're saying? The the you, draft that was you, written on the 4th of February and, and then somehow got lost and was discovered right. not until 1989. So the original That's right. translation that was signed uh, at Waitangi on February the 6th had been written uh, by this lawyer uh, or, or given to the lawyer uh, called Henry Littlewood uh, soon after the treaty mm-hmm. was signed and it went missing. Is that right? No. It was actually went missing. The last the last trace we have of that final English draft, it's called the Littlewood draft, um, was the last official um, trace we have of that is that Clendon, who was the US consul in um, New Zealand, because America had business interests in this country, sealing, flax, whaling, and so on. And so he was constantly communicating, Glendon was, with America. And on the 29th of March, 1840, a American explorer came here. His name was Commodore Charles Wilkes, W-I-L-K-E-S. And he arrived in New Zealand en route to Antarctica. And he was on the ship called the Nicens, a USS, and he asked Clendon to make him a copy of the final English draft, which he did. So Clendon had this final English draft, and he gave a copy of it to Commodore Wilkes, and it was delivered on the 3rd of April. And he sent that dispatch number 64 to America. That's Wilkes sent it to America, dispatch 64. Um, And he also made a copy of it in the ship's letterbook. Now, that is the last, those two copies that were made, one was sent to America, and we have that, and one was put in the ship's letterbook, we have that. Um, that was the last we know about the sort of recorded evidence that we have that this final English draft was around. But we know for a fact that this lawyer called Henry Littlewood, who was set up his shop in Paihia, was doing conveyancing work with Clendon. Now, it appears that Clendon was the one who really had this um, because had this final English draft. And um, it was given to 
this, this lawyer called Henry Littlewood, and he stored it, and it was lost until, as you say, 1989, when it was found in a house in Pukekohe, and Beryl Needham was looking through a deceased estate of their relatives, pulled out some sheets from a drawer, and onto the floor, can you believe it, dropped an envelope with Treaty of Waitangi scratched on the back. And they opened that, and sure enough, it was the final English draft. And it is absolutely identical to the treaty in Māori that was signed at Waitangi on the 6th of February. There's only two differences between it. It's You could say it's a mirror image, but there's two differences. The final English draft is dated the 4th of February because that was when it was translated on the evening of the 4th of February. That's when it was translated into Māori by Williams, uh, Henry Williams and his son Edward. And so we can accept that difference. And the, the date on the actual Māori Treaty is the 6th. The Treaty in Māori is the 6th of February. That's the one that was signed. Well, that's a totally acceptable uh, difference between the two. The only other difference is that last minute, Hobson, Williams, Clendon and, Ta and Taylor, they put in the word Māori in Article 3 so it, 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 of the treaty, last minute, the treaty in Māori. Now, that's not in the final English draft, but it is in the treaty in Māori. And it says that the Māori people of New Zealand shall receive British citizenship. So why did they stick that word in? Well, it's obvious because people who were in New Zealand at the time were British. They were already British citizens. So Clendon, Hobson, Williams, Taylor, and the other treaty writers, officials, they decided to put the word Māori into Article 3 to make it clear that this treaty was for Māori, the citizenship was for Māori, and um, that they couldn't possibly get it wrong because the big thing Māori wanted was British citizenship. They wanted protection from themselves, the law of Britain stopping war between Māori tribes, and they wanted protection from the French. Yes, yes. I think that is uh, historically understood. Uh, and, yeah, I don't know where we can go on this, Julian, because what you've just uh, just told us has been espoused many times before. Uh, I've certainly heard it, and nobody inside Māoridom, the scholars, the Ned Fletchers of this world, who was the latest uh, to make claims that sovereignty was never ceded, uh, the a lot of that has never been uh, disavowed, has it? The question now is because because we've got an ongoing argument, ongoing discussion about the treaty and its real meaning, and it's an industry which has been going. Well, heaven forbid the Waitangi Tribunal was set up as uh, having its fiftieth anniversary in in two years' time, uh, and there's no sign of it uh, ever being closed down by anybody. What do you think then of the ACT Party policy of what David Seymour is proposing, that we have a referendum, that all references to the treaty are removed from New Zealand legislation and that we we basically have a clean slate with much of our legislation and that the Waitangi Tribunal is disposed of and, and closed down? Do you think that is a goer? Do you think it's a possibility do you believe that the National Party would ever agree to such a plan? I don't know what's in the mind of David Seymour, but I know that if we returned, I think I think that's kind of going the wrong direction. It's better than nothing for sure, definitely, but 
I think it's going the wrong direction because I think if, if we got back to the original meaning, the original intent of the British in the treaty in Maori, we'd have a beautiful country. We'd have democracy. We'd have one person, one vote, all votes of equal value. We'd have the end of apartheid, which is rampant now in New Zealand. We'd have the end of racism, which is rampant. We would have free speech. We would have one law for all. We'd have a great country. But what's happened is this treaty has been twisted and contorted, and it's not being upheld. It's not being honoured. It's been trashed. It's been twisted. It's been corrupted. And so the difference between the original treaty that was signed on February the 6th, 1840, and what we have today, they are not recognisable. They're completely different. And so I would say we don't need a referendum. What we need is a return to the original meaning of the original treaty in Maori, which is what I'm on about. And um, if we did that, we'd have a beautiful country because that's what Britain wanted for New Zealand. They wanted democracy, free speech, one law for all the things I've just mentioned. And that's all in the original treaty. But because it's been twisted and contorted, it's become a political weapon to get stuff from Kiwis that belong to all New Zealand. You could get stuff for elite Maori, which belong to all New Zealanders. It's wrong. Yeah. It's fraud. <sighs> Julian, we've, we've reached an impasse in this country, though. Something has got to happen because you are trying your best. Uh, some politicians, and Seymour is probably at the top of the list, although New Zealand First are making an effort as well. Some politicians are trying to close down this discussion to to close the argument. But really, we've got to reach some kind of compromise, can't we? Because we cannot continue along the lines we are at the moment with this, with this tension in the country. So do you really believe that your approach is the best way to do it? Don't we have to have some more nuanced, rational discussion where people where people can have sympathies to the to the other points of view? Because I, I just see us at the moment going nowhere, and that's that's the frustrating thing about it. Can you see that? Well, we're different. No, I think we are going somewhere. The number of supporters we're getting is growing massively because what's happened is that the, 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 the media in New Zealand has done its best to cover up um, what the truth is about the treaty, and to, to push the government narrative is that everything's fine and what the tribunal pumps out is fine and it's not. And so, you know, like Mahatma Gandhi said, truth always wins in the end. And as long as we're telling the truth, that is me and what we're standing for is the truth, then the truth in the end always wins. It might not look like it's winning for a while, but in the end it always wins. Truth always trumps lies and deception and trickery. So I feel like eventually, see, my book is what we sold 350,000 copies of that. And not one media agency has attacked anything in that. Now, that's incredible. Not one, because there's nothing to attack in that. It's just facts. And that booklet is awakening people in New Zealand to realities about the Treaty of Waitangi. And my seminars are doing the same thing. And people are now get, getting them online. Last night we did a live feed. We've had 6,000 people view that. We usually get between 50 and 300 people in a physical meeting. Well, we just got 6,000 online people from the stats that we've got from Facebook. And so 
What you're getting here is you're getting an awakening happening in New Zealand to something that's been the fraud and corruption that's been happening in New Zealand for 40 years. And it's been systematically covered up. And then, you know, don't get me going because we've got the new history curriculum that's been put into schools, which is just propaganda and grooming. We've got street signs in Maori, which is grooming. You've got Te Reo and all the government documents, which is grooming. You've got um, the new health authority um, and treating people by the colour of their skin, not according to their need. And you've got, I believe, corruption in every government department now. And, you know, I would never have said this six months ago, but since I've done this tour, I've discovered, oh, my goodness, New Zealand's a rotting carcass. This, everything is corrupt, absolutely everything. And it's hard to believe that this is the country that I grew up in because it's, an, it's incredible what's going on here. And you wouldn't know this unless you were doing what I'm doing because it all comes out. It's like you're lancing a boil. Wow. Julian, thank you so much for talking to us here on Reality Check Radio. Uh, it's fascinating what you have to say. It is fascinating the reaction you're getting. Do you believe you'll be having public meetings in Whakatane or will you be once again reduced to going into a bunker and doing an online seminar? Do you think you'll, you'll get some sympathetic venue owner to allow you to actually conduct a public meeting there? Well, let's hope so, but we never know until we get to the till we get to the city. We always want to do free open meetings for anybody who would like to come and hear, just so that people can get a perspective on all this and they can go away, do their own research, find out with you know, they're adults in this country. They can find out for themselves whether they want to believe what I want to say. And then the opposition or the people who think that I'm wrong, they should put on their own seminars and provide their point of view, but they never do. Indeed. They never do. So yep. that's the that's the thing. All right, Julian, best wishes for the rest of the tour and we will see what unfolds during the next few months. Thanks for talking to us again here on uh, Reality Check Radio. Good to have you. Thanks, Peter. Okay, goodbye. Peter Williams from 1 o'clock on RCR, Reality Check Radio. 